Hi, I'm Peter Erpeth, and this is Alt Control Create, a podcast for small creative businesses finding their way through changed and challenging times. Alt Control Create is produced in association with Expo North, the agency supporting the growth and sustainability of the creative industries in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. This new podcast series is part of Expo North's suite of digital activities aimed at continuing that support in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Expo North provides tailored advice and support for emerging creative businesses in the region, along with a programme of events and a long-running annual international conference for the creative industries. This is a dynamic and creative place to live and work, and one that benefits from the long-term commitment of its business development agency, Highlands and Islands Enterprise, who fund the work of Expo North. More details are at the website exponorth.co.uk. That's xponorth.co.uk. So this podcast series is for small creative businesses working in the wake of the pandemic. And before getting into this first edition, let's be clear. No one has the answer to what the new normal might look like for small creative businesses, or even when we will be able to say with any certainty that it has arrived. Alt Control Create aims to look at the issues and challenges as they occur and to bring to light creative responses and insights. For many, the hope is also that in the face of the hardships caused by the pandemic, new ways of working that are greener, more digital, more equitable and more sustainable might be possible. And that is also ripe ground for exploration. But in this podcast, I also hope to create a sense that creative SMEs are not alone and that our shared insights and energy can be of immense value as we face into that future. Now to this edition. I'm very pleased to present a discussion with Mark McGuinness, Mark is a poet, a writer, a creative coach, a therapist and a first-class podcaster in his 21st Century Creative series. Over recent years, Mark has developed many insightful and highly valuable approaches to developing and sustaining a creative work in life and business. Without hesitation, Mark was my go-to for the first edition of this podcast, which was recorded in the height of the pandemic lockdown period in the UK. Many creative individuals and SMEs are well used to working with uncertainty and in more precarious and fragile marketplaces than other sectors. And that familiarity with uncertainty is a starting point for our discussion, as well as the value of creating assets for a creative business, the value of curiosity and some fascinating strategies to support resilience in the face of these unparalleled challenges. Please like, recommend, rate, review and share this podcast and please do get in touch via the links on our podcast pages. Details of Mark's platforms and contacts are in the text for this podcast and at the end of the interview. Thanks for listening. Mark, thanks very much for uh, coming on to this podcast as its very first guest. I'm very grateful uh, to you for that. Can I uh, start by asking you, your own art is um, that of a poet, as well as the uh, coaching things I've mentioned in the in the introduction. Can I ask you how that's um, going? I know you, that you like to have a very kind of ordered approach to the working day and so on as well, and you have a routine around many of those things. How's that uh, faring and holding up in face of the uh, the current uh, situation? I've been very grateful for poetry over the last few weeks. It's, um, 
it's always been a refuge for me or a place where I can go and get centered or grounded or whatever metaphor you want to use. And um, I haven't been writing so much, but I have been doing quite a lot of reading and reflecting. And, you know, the other day, one of the things I did was I went and recorded Thomas Hardy's poem, The Darkling Thrush, um, which is a great um, meditation on hope and despair. And I recorded it and some thoughts on what I thought it could, you know, how I think it, the poem can speak to us at a time like this of great uncertainty, despair. Um, hopefully hope is not being entirely distinguished. Um, and talked about the poem and then I just sent it out to the people on my mailing list. And it was really nice just to have that as, as something I could do and something I could share. Because I thought, well, I can, I'm reading this. I'm getting comfort. I'm getting perspective from it. Well, why not share it? So, And actually, that was a really uh, restorative thing to do for me to read the poem and put it out there and, and just, you know, and, and, and see that it was resonating for people. To what extent do you think that um, creative people and creative process and creative practice, there's always been uncertainty in that? to a high degree and that the creative people deal with uncertainty um almost on a you know a revolving daily basis do you think that that, that the creative people in this regard are somehow better equipped to approach the the uncertainties of the of the moment yes (laughs) in a nutshell i mean that's what we have to live with isn't it you know when we are faced with a blank page or a blank canvas or stage and we're the ones who have to go and fill it. And we all know that that fear, but also the excitement of not knowing what's going to happen next. Because if you knew what was going to happen next, it wouldn't be creative, would it? You know, there's that. There's always, I think, that element of discovery, of surprise, of sometimes shock, but it, and letting go and going with the source of inspiration or, or, or whatever it is that is at the core of what we do. And for those of us who are also self-employed and running businesses of various kinds, we're familiar with a whole other level of uncertainty, which is we've got to thrive. We, you know, we don't get the security of the, the steady paycheck, um, probably not working nine to five in an office full of colleagues who, you know, we're going to see the same people week in, week out. So I would say, yeah, we're, you know, we're already, good at navigating uncertainty. And I would say, to a point, the uncertainty is what makes it attractive. Because if you knew it in advance, how it would work out, writing that book or creating that piece of music or play or whatever it may be, it would be boring because, you know, there there wouldn't be anything to discover. Now, of course, we are faced with a, a lot of Unwelcome uncertainty. I don't think there's many people who are looking at this as an unmitigated boon. But I do think we've got skills, we've got mindset, we've got experience, we've got the ability to improvise in in the face of uncertainty. And I would say to anyone listening to this, you know, dig deep for that. Because there's a lot of people who are, you know, being thrown out of the, the more secure, more predictable environment who are really struggling at the moment. And, you know, A, we've got skills that can help ourselves and maybe skills that can help other people too so what would you say were the kind of the ways that people can actually access that but in terms of strategies around this how do people get into this where would you say they should start to um 
uh, find for themselves the things of value and the things of, of creativity and actually turn those into things that are productive and valuable for themselves and for others? Where do we start? What matters most to you is a question I would ask. And it, it may not be the most obviously practical thing. I mean, you know, Thomas Hardy poem is not going to fight coronavirus. But that was what came up for me and, and what I wanted to share. And it's actually something that has, you know, it, on an emotional level, I'm hearing from people that it, it meant a lot and it, it gives them a bit of perspective and allows them to to feel and acknowledge and experience the emotion. And, and also at the end of the poem, it hardly leaves the door open for hope, even though he is of a somewhat gloomy cast of mind, to put it mildly. Um, so I would say whatever, you know, what is your the center of your creative world? I would say start from there. If, if it's writing, if it's making music, if it's playing, if it's acting, speaking, serving uh, clients, whatever that is, get centered in that place because this is a time where we don't want to be coming from the anxiety from the insecurity, from the, you know, from the fear. We want to come from, uh, you know, that, that still point inside, which is also the, the source of our creative energy. Mm -hmm. So whatever your, I guess in practical terms, that means w where is your creative practice? Where, where can you go? Um, and it may be like me that even if you didn't, you know, I didn't sit down and pen any great ode. I just went to the bookshelf and took down a poem that meant a lot to me and spent time with it. So it may be that it's about going back to work you love and then spending time with that as a first step. But the uncertainties now are different. None of us knows what our industries um, will look like beyond um, the current moment. We don't know. And it's full yeah. of uncertainty, but these are new and different uncertainties. How can we deal with that and address that in our in our creative lives, such that we um, remain productive? Well, I think we want to focus on going from the inside out. So, start with something that restores you every day. And we've talked just now about creative practice, but it could be another kind of practice. It could be exercise. It could be meditation or prayer or another spiritual practice. It could be studying. It could be going for a walk. It could be just spending time, you know, reading some fiction or watching a good movie or um, sharing a, you know, it'd have to be a virtual coffee or beer with a friend. So have something like that every day, make that a priority. And it's, you know, to the voice that's saying, well, isn't that selfish and self-indulgent and there's stuff to do? Well, it's, it's a bit like putting your own oxygen mask on before the person next to you. So you've, right now, we're all being called to show up as our most creative, our most resourceful and courageous selves. And you've got to do what it takes to put fuel in the tank. So that's number one. Have, have that kind of practice. Another thing I find really helpful myself, and I use a lot with clients, is Stephen Covey's circles of influence and circle of concern. So if you can imagine like a big circle, which encompasses everything that affects you, and it's, I'm drawing the circle in the air, but of course you can't see this. So you have to imagine the circle, listeners. Um, and in that circle is everything that affects you. And that includes the economy. It includes the weather. It includes um, your friend's behavior, your colleague's behavior. It obviously includes coronavirus and the economic fallout from that. 
And the bad news is there's always going to be more of that stuff that affects us that we can't do anything about. But within that, imagine it's like a fried egg. And here I'm, I'm drawing a slightly smaller circle in the air is what Covey calls your circle of influence. So this is all the stuff that you can actually do something about. The bad news is that circle is always going to be smaller than the big one. And, you know, the circles never flip. There's always going to be more stuff that affects you than vice versa. But here's the thing. The more time and energy you devote to that big circle, for instance, reading the news, obsessing about it, freaking out on social media, um, which seems to be a fire hose of anxiety at the moment, <laughs> um, worrying about stuff that you can't control, the more disempowered you're going to feel and the more disempowered you will be. But the more time you spend in that small circle doing things that are going to make a difference. So taking care of yourself, taking care of your family, um, people who are close to you, uh, doing your work. Um, if you're able to work right now, doubling down on what's going to make the biggest difference. If you're not, then doing something that will um, restore you, that will uh, give you some sense of accomplishment or empowerment. You know, there are lots of people saying, well, I'm going to use the time to work on that project or learn a language or a musical instrument or whatever it is. Um, so, and here's the thing, the more time you spend in that small circle, the bigger it will get and the more empowered you will feel. And as Covey says, you, it's never going to get as big as the other one, but it can get a whole lot bigger. And that's, and, and you know, like right now, as, as Peter says, we don't know what the solutions are. We don't even really know what the questions are, but the solutions are going to come from that small circle, not the big one. I think this is very interesting, Mark, because what you speak of here is the importance of our work being of value to others, rather than considerations from what was traditionally conceived, perhaps, as the other end of the spectrum, the naked push and pursuit of our own monetary income. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know this in our hearts as creators, that if you if you start chasing the money or the fame or the the good reviews or the approval of people within your creative field that is a that's a recipe for disaster it's because it's not going to be authentic and it's it's not going to be from the heart and actually this is something that i discovered when i did my masters the um the psychologists have proven this which i'm very pleased to hear as a romantic poet that the higher your level of intrinsic motivation, in other words, the more you're doing it for love rather than, you know, for its own sake, rather than for any rewards you might get, monetary or otherwise, the more creative and original you will be. And apparently this is a really robust finding in psychology. The more you are focused on the extrinsic rewards, so the money, the fame, the reputation, the, the approval of other people, whether that's a client or the New York Times book critic or, or whoever, that's been proven to be a creativity killer. Mm -hmm. And so there's a paradox here. The more you chase the money and the other rewards, the less valuable your work will be and the less likely you are to get those rewards. Now, it's not to say you never think about them because there are times when you think about them, signing a contract, for instance. But really, you need to be focused on where is my gift the strongest where do i feel it where would i pursue this how far would i follow it regardless of rewards you know and it could be artistic in terms of you know ma making a a piece of work but it can also be more practical it could be serving a client from the heart 
and really looking at them and think what would serve this person rather than just pleasing them or keeping them happy. Yeah. What, what might be the uncomfortable truth that they would need to hear? It could also be, and I see this a lot with kind of entrepreneurs and innovators, they're just fascinated by solving practical problems. How do I bring something to market that is better, that delivers more value um, than what's already available? So, but, you know, there, and you could say, because you know, I work with a whole spectrum of clients, in one sense, the entrepreneurs are, they, on, on from the outside, they look like they are more focused on the intrinsic stuff, which to a degree they are. But also when you get down to it, what they love is the joy of solving that problem of making something great and, and designing systems or companies or business models that are going to deliver outsized value. One of the things that you uh, talk about um, a lot in, in your work is the notion of asset. Where are we now in terms of the concept of um, assets and the, the, the creative person and the creative work? So one of my mottos is forget the career ladder start creating assets and so where this comes from is my own experience as well as talking to lots of clients about this of you know you look at when you set out on your career and you, you have your friends who took the sensible path and they get the nine to five job and then they get the promotion and the you know the bigger office and the fancy job title and you kind of hear about it oh your cousin george is doing so well at the law firm or whatever it is and and then meanwhile, you're sat there in a studio and you've got no idea what you're doing or it feels like that because of the uncertainty we were talking about earlier on. And it's very easy to feel, what am I doing with my life? What, where is my career trajectory? Where's my corner office and my fancy job title? Um, but I realized when I thought about this, and I looked at, well, you know, what do the most outstanding creators have? The ones who are the most successful as well as fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And I realized a lot of it comes down to a particular type of assets. So I'm not talking about, you know, assets as in owning a, a company or a stock portfolio or, or whatever. I'm talking about, I don't know, if you're Stephen King or Kate Bush, you're not so worried where next month's bills are being paid. And it partly, you know, we look at it and think, well, that's the magic of, you know, they, li they live in some ethereal realm, which perhaps they do. But actually, if you look at what is the foundation of the security they have, is they have an amazing back catalogue of incredible work. People know them for their work and, and people want to work with them. People want to buy their work. People want to consume it. People want to share it. And there's a lot of intellectual property within their work that can be exploited in different ways. And there's just also those, you know, they're, they're never going to be short of collaborators. If Stephen King rings you tomorrow and says, hey, I've got an idea for a project, would you like, to, you know, I mean, the answer is almost certainly going to be yes. <laughs> or at least tell me more, Stephen. <laughs> and now we don't, and, and the point is we don't have to be at that level of superstardom for this to be true because on a more modest level, if you have a... I don't know, say you're a writer and you've got a set of books out that are well-received and that sell solidly. If you have a mailing list that allows you to let people know when the next release comes out, if you have, as a consequence of 
all of these efforts, you've got a good reputation, people know you for a certain kind of story, then that gives you a security that maybe you could argue that somebody with the job in the corner office doesn't have because they can be sacked, whereas it's hard to sack an author. And, and so what I would say is look at your career in terms of different types of asset. That, and here's the magical thing about being a creative is we can create the assets ourselves out, almost out of thin air. Now, the number one asset is you. It is, I mean, you know, let's go back to, say, Kate Bush for a minute. Even if all her music vanished from the face of the earth, there was some weird copyright ruling that only new music was ever going to be allowed to be heard again. She could start again because she will say, well, I'll, I'll do something else. And we know, you know, she is Kate Bush and she, it will be amazing. So whatever you do to work on yourself, to develop your skills, your experience, your courage, your resilience, your resourcefulness, that will be with you for the rest of your life. You know, when I look back, the personal development work I've done with therapist and coach and teachers and, and also just putting myself in scary and challenging situations, that's really the most valuable investment I've made. You know, just to touch briefly on other types of asset that is, is your back catalog, uh, you know, the work that you've done in your portfolio that you point to and you're proud of. There's the intellectual property in that, all the different rights and licenses that you could extrapolate from that. There's your reputation sometimes known as your brand, you, uh, any kind of online presence you have, a website, a mailing list, social media followings, uh, your network, the people that you know and who think well of you professionally, um, audience, community, all, all of these things. So what I would suggest you do right now, you know, if you have a, bit, a little time on your hands, you just go through and think about those different categories and think, where am I strongest? What do I have in each of these buckets? And how could they help me right now? Mm -hmm. How could the fact that I've got a great network help me to connect with other people and, and do something together, for instance? Or how can I extend my catalog? Maybe this is now time to sit down and if you have some time, get to work on that thing that you've been wanting to do for ages. So there's, I guess it's partly, it's, it's a question of, well, what have I got right now that can help me in this uncertain situation? And also, what can I keep building for the future? What, you know, whether it's a, a, another book, another project, whatever, that is going to set me up for, to be more resilient with however this situation pans out. So can I just take you right back to the very beginning and ask you, the kind of uncertainties that you had to deal with when you started out uh, down this road, they, they, they were obviously quite different in many ways, but they were still uncertainties. And what would, you say, what would you say were the kind of key things that enabled you to overcome those? What were the strategies? What were the kind of thoughts that enabled you to, to move on? Because there would have been roadblocks, and we're all facing a roadblock at the moment. Um, so how do we overcome that? How did you overcome that Like right back in the beginning of this? Right, in the dark, backward and abysm of time, as Shakespeare would have it. Um, that's a really good question. And as you ask it to me now, it, it, it realizes it, it was one roadblock, one set of uncertainty after another. Um, so when I was a teenager, that was when I fell in love with poetry and realized that's what I wanted to do. Um, but of course, it's not a career. And 
I thought, well, the obvious thing to do is go to college and read English, which is what I did. But and I kind of had the idea that, well, maybe I can stay in academia and that will give me time to sit in the library and write and I can hide from the big bad world there. But it didn't work out because I turned out I'm allergic to academia. <laughs> and I got really I got myself really so stressed out that I ended up having to defer my final exams. And the upshot of that was that I didn't quite get uh, the first class degree that I would need in order to go on and do a PhD in English. Um, and weirdly, on the one level, that felt like a big failure. But on another level, I'd started working with a therapist and I got really interested in hypnosis. Uh-huh. She was a hypnotherapist. And one day she said to me, and I was like agonizing over what I'm going to do with my life. And one day, Catherine, my therapist, said to me, well, why don't you do this? And I was like, but surely you have to be old and wise to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, no, not necessarily. (laughs) And at that point, I suddenly got fascinated by hypnosis, by psychology, by change. And I went and applied. I, I remember thinking I wasn't quite old enough to get you were supposed to be 25 before you enrolled as a therapist and I was a year younger but they let me in because they said well by the time you qualify you'll you'll probably be old enough <laughs> and so I would just kind of I, I felt very lucky that they let me in and it was a, a really huge surprise that I discovered I loved working with people uh-huh. that I wasn't such a bookworm after all and that I when I came out of my shell I could really connect with people at quite a deep level and help them. And so that was the beginning of my career as a psychotherapist. And it was while I was a therapist that I realized something was going on when I was consulted by a certain type of client. So this was the West End actor with stage fright, the novelist with writer's block, the film director dealing with the stress of making a movie. And there there was a kind of an energy and a connection in and a level of transformation in these sessions that was really quite extraordinary. And I remember the clients themselves were saying, this isn't what I expected. This, this is really powerful. You should do more of this. And at that point I thought, well, you know what? Most of these people don't really have the creatives. They don't necessarily have a mental health problem, but they're creative. They put their heart and their soul into their work. Why don't I call it coaching? And this was in the mid nineties when it was, there weren't many people outside sports to calling themselves coaches. Sure. And so really I discovered my coaching practice vocation by serendipity. It, I just kind of stumbled along it, but all the while I was following my curiosity. And I think this is another thing. If you're not sure where to start, start with curiosity because that will take you to the next point. I mean, you know, people talk about follow your passion, which is great, but it generally doesn't arrive with a you know big brass band saying, I'm your passion. This is your life's calling. It's it starts with a bit of curiosity. Well, well, what if I learn a bit more about hypnosis? Well, would they let me into that college? Or supposing I call this coaching instead of therapy, what happens then? Okay. Um, and so it was really that. I guess if I were to give my younger self some credit, I did follow my curiosity, oh. which helped me a lot through the through the <laughs> uh, wave after wave of uncertainty and obstacles. 
I mean, curiosity is a very uh, curious word, isn't it? You know, because mm-hmm. well, for me, I I always find it generally tends to lead outwards. It tends to lead something to I hadn't considered before, like hypnosis or coaching. Or later on, I had the opportunity to go and do some um, business coaching at a big corporation, and I thought, well, and I'd always hated business. I'd always just I'm certainly allergic to corporate life. Um, But I thought, well, why not? Why not go in and see what happens and see if you could help? And my mind was blown by how how helpful the skills I'd learned as a therapist essentially were in the context of leading and managing and developing people in in a large corporation. So and then I got interested beyond that. I realized, well, there's specific there's creative business. And I went on and did my master's and that's how I came across Seth Godin and he talked about blogging and I, and I discovered, so for me, it's it's real curiosity. I think in my experience, nearly always leads outwards or it leads Uh inwards in a productive way. Like you could say there's an artistic curiosity. I'm going to follow this idea for a story or um, a piece of music or or, or whatever. So that uh, I would say it's, it's almost, a characteristic of real curiosity that it is leading you somewhere you haven't been before. Yeah. Yeah. I presume in this series of processes, you didn't go from poetry to um, coaching inside a large corporation without some um, holdups on, on route. How did you make that move forward? I mean, you know, there, there must've been days where you said, this is just not happening. How long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) at the moment a good few weeks honestly because now i can look back and hopefully send a bit of encouragement to my younger self because i can see the pattern and i think one pattern is that almost almost all the time it seems that when i really followed my curiosity even if it didn't learn very lead very far it usually came in useful at some point a bit later on like copywriting for instance at one point was something that i did freelance and ended up doing quite a lot online and it's something I will help clients for. It's, it's certainly not my main offering, but it's, it's always something I can help clients with. So that's kind of just a little bit of something in my back pocket that I picked up along the way. But to come back to your question, yeah, I mean, at the time, it just felt like, I, where am I going with all of this? And on the one and on the one level, I knew I was doing great work in a room with a client. On another level, it didn't feel like my poetry was going anywhere at all for a very long time. And there were certainly plenty of times, you know, I do want to give the impression that, you know, I was always this model of uh, enlightenment and maturity (laughs) and whatever. I've done my, I've got my stripes for whinging and moaning and complaining and procrastinating and avoiding and chickening out of big challenges. But there was always something that just wouldn't let me let go. I mean, I remember being out quite distinctly. I remember going out with a friend who was a bit older, who was more of a, a mentor to me. And we had dinner and we had a few beers. And as usual, at a certain point, I started complaining about how my work wasn't going anywhere, how my love life wasn't going anywhere, you know, et cetera. And my friend looked at me rather kindly and he said, well, then why don't you just go back and get a job in publishing again? Because I'd had that was about the only full time job I've ever had was I worked in publishing for a couple of years in order. Now, I remember to pay for my therapy training. And I I remember looking at my friend and thinking, are you gone mad? I said, I'm not going to give up. I'm on a mission. 
Isn't that obvious? <laughs> there was just something in me that was not going to give up, that was just going to keep at this until I figured it out. So I think all creators, you know, you get if you get to a certain point, you've got to have had that because if you don't have that, you're going to give up years ago. And yeah. we, we all have plenty of reasons to give up. This is one thing I realized one day is I could have any excuse for giving up. And I could get loads of sympathy from people around me if I'd given up. Poor Mark. It was just too hard, wasn't it? Oh, well, you did your best. And I just thought, no, I don't want that. I want to figure it out. I want to get the success. And I think that was a turning point for me when I realized that is in my hands. If I keep at this yeah. long enough, I can, and, and if, if I keep learning, then I can figure it out. Can, can you remember when you started to actually kind of formalize those in a way that you were later able to turn into, you know, a creative coaching role, something that, that understands and responds to the particular vagaries of, of, uh, of the creative life? I think working as a psychotherapist was a very good uh, apprenticeship in that because when you really work with people who are at the very sharp end of what life can deal you, Sure. then you really start to find out what does work and, and, and what doesn't in terms of staying resilient and resourceful and, and moving forward in spite of, of whatever's happened. And I was influenced a lot by something called solution-oriented psychotherapy, which was created by a, a lovely therapist called Bill O'Hanlon in the States. Um, and essentially it says it's it's very similar to coaching and i think it's been very influential on coaching is what is your goal here because a lot of therapy for instance focuses on the problem what's wrong let's work out what the root of that is let's understand that and there's all kinds of different models for understanding it but solution oriented therapy says well where do you want to be instead what what would success or improvement look like for you how would you like to be able to respond to whatever this situation is and move forward from that? And then it starts to ask questions like, well, where are you already doing that? Now, this is a really interesting question because if I was confronted by someone coming in and they say, well, I'm depressed mm -hmm. or I'm an alcoholic or whatever it may be. And I, I would get them to keep a diary. I say, well, with someone who's depressed, for instance, say, on a scale of one to 10, how depressed do you feel? And get them to do this every hour on the hour. And what we discovered is there was a large parts of their day where they were not depressed, where they were busy or even feeling optimistic and energized. Okay. But it was the moments when they say, when it all hit me or when something went wrong, that overshadowed the whole day. And it was tremendously resourceful sometimes to realize, actually, you're not depressed all the time. Okay. It's not to minimize the 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 effect of it similar with somebody who drinks to excess getting them to focus on the time for instance when you felt like having a drink but you didn't have one yeah. and that was tremendously empowering for those people so i mean that's one example of a solution oriented technique mm -hmm. where you look for times when you actually you're succeeding and if you say we'll do more of that so if you think about it, the beginning of today's conversation, when we talked about uncertainty, what I was looking for was the time when, as creatives, we are resourceful in the face of uncertainty. And that's something we can draw on right now in the face of this, this huge uncertainty that we're all facing. Yeah. So it's really, I, I think, you know, coming back to your question, it, it's 
the strategy such as it is, is really it's a learning strategy. It's a growth strategy. It's a, what can I, what can I bring to this situation or what can I learn from this situation? Whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And you just keep applying that in different contexts. And after a while, those contexts can stack up. You know, for me, I've done poetry, I've done therapy, I've done um, business, leadership, coaching. I did a bit of sports coaching. Um, I've done a lot of copywriting and other types of writing. And after a while, they all kind of stack up into something that is helpful to me and is helpful to clients. And, um, you know, I could probably break that down further in terms of the different types of poetry I've read and tried to write, how that is is kind of emerged into the kind of poetry I write now. Great. Well, thanks, Mark. Can I just um, ask you one other thing, which is always the same thing, which is mm-hmm. how, how if uh, people listening to this want to um, get greater connection with your work, how can they do that? Where can, where can they go? So the two main places I would say are number one is lateralaction.com, um, which is my main coaching site. It's where you'll find my blog um, you'll find my podcast, you'll find my books. Um, you know, that's where you can connect with me if you're interested in coaching. Um, and also go to iTunes and look for the 21st century creative podcast. And as we record this, I've got four seasons up, which is about 40 odd hours of interviews with inspiring creators and my own thoughts. Um, so hopefully there should be quite a lot of inspiration there for you. Um, and if you're interested in the poetry and maybe the recording of Thomas Hardy, uh, The Darkling Thrush, then that's all at markmcginnis.com. So I've got a, a poetry blog and audio recordings there. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Mark. Good speaking. speak to you. Thank you, Peter. It's always um, great to be in your company. Um, you, you do such a lot for the creative community. And I always feel kind of empowered and recharged listening to you. So I think it's really great that you're doing this show. Well, thanks very much, Mark. It's very kind. 